Okay, can you give us a podcast noise? <laughs> Welcome to the Mormons and Drugs podcast, a weekly podcast wherein I discuss the shockingly frequent intersections of Mormonism, magic, and drugs. Joining me is my co-host and producer, Moth Dula. Hello. <laughs> and, uh, of course, Morticia, the podcasting kitty. Yeah. <laughs> That's not her. <laughs> Uh, for those of you new to Mormon history and the podcast, this is our first episode, uh, those nice kids that go around on bicycles and suits with clean little uh, black tags on their chest are uh, salespersons for one of the larger sects of esoteric Christianity. The Mormon faith, so to speak, has a handful of sects itself, but most people would be familiar or have experience with the mainstream form known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the LDS. The LDS are known today for abstinence from mind-altering substances such as alcohol, tobacco, and even caffeinated beverages. But as we will uncover in this podcast, that was not always the average Mormon mindset. I myself was raised in this branch of Mormonism, and while I do not attend church any longer, my education and upbringing in that faith has shown me some strange crossovers with my other passion uh, for history and, let's say, paranormal studies meaning mostly magic, uh, the nature of consciousness, and drugs. <laughs> you see, when I was young, I had chronic and severe migraine headaches that could result in temporary blindness and seizures. And while I had some weird interests for the average Mormon kid, it was not until I became a teenager in high school that I first came across scientific evidence uh, for LSD and psilocybin uh, being used as a medicine specifically for migraine treatments. Uh, I'd been given an assignment in health class to give a presentation on an illicit drug, mine being LSD and psilocybin, as I mentioned. And as I delved into the topic, I was shocked to find that despite years of indoctrination from the Mormons and public programs like D.A.R.E., I could not find a scrap of evidence suggesting that LSD or psilocybin were any more dangerous than, like, aspirin. Uh, we'll cover this in much greater details in later episodes, if that sounds a bit crazy. But it led me down a research rabbit hole that I haven't quite made my way out of yet. And as a former Mormon seminary student, I began to notice frequent correlations between drug use and the language used almost universally by world religions regarding contact or experiences with the other world. When I looked deeper into these sort of connections, uh, I came across the works that inspired the next step in my journey, uh, those being D. Michael Quinn's book, Early Mormonism and the Magical Worldview, and Robert Beckstead's paper, Restoration and the Sacred Mushroom. Uh, these works seem to bring my conspiratorial suspicions into a researchable and perhaps even testable hypothesis. While I now diverge at points with both authors' interpretation of Mormon history, uh, they did inspire the last near decade of my own research into this topic and the subject of my own book, which I'm sure you'll hear me bring up all the time. Uh, so here we are, as mainly an excuse to rant about the topic I'm so closely tied to, and to help spur me to finish this goddamn book you're going to hear about <laughs> ad nauseum, <laughs> this, uh, this podcast was born. Every week, uh, you'll get a historical and theological deep dive into the people, drugs, magic, and stranger-than-fiction events that became the Mormon faith today. Uh, so without further ado, as I'm likely to get into the historical weeds rather quickly in this podcast series, uh, it's probably a good idea to get the Mormon historical basics out of the way first. So for the next few episodes, as you may have seen by the title, 
This will be all about the Smith family and their close friends, the people who otherwise became the founding members and advocates of what would become Mormonism. I should probably explain our uh, recording studio situation. <laughs> uh, yeah, for for those of you that may from time to time hear kittens or children or uh, doors being shut and bathrooms being used, <laughs> um, um, our podcasting studio is a spare room next to our bathroom so there are children's in that don't care the house that uh <laughs> are otherwise occupied while we record a, a podcast i don't know before i go on uh moth doula is there anything uh you want to say or are there any little tidbits you'd like the audience to know um no i'll probably just interject occasionally just to keep you on track um so you don't go down <laughs> <laughs> there they are down your deep rabbit holes of information although i you know if anyone ever wants him to go back to something he might have mentioned we're always willing to totally do that and i will let him know um what is the email for the podcast so people can get a hold of us oh uh it's at mormons and drugs dot or uh, gmail.com mormons and spelled out drugs with an s at gmail.com and uh we also have a would you like people to address moth or doula or should it be miss doula or? <laughs> moth doula is fine moth oh, is fine okay totally fine moth is totally fine um we also have an instagram although we have not posted anything on it yet um once we launch we will and we also have um it's Mormons and Drugs podcast, I believe, on Instagram, and then Mormon underscore Drugs on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, cool. yeah, and I'll just um, also occasionally interject with just fun astrological tidbits if uh, if anyone's into that kind of thing. <laughs> um, it seems slightly relevant considering the people that we're covering, and but if you're not, don't worry. It's not for you. <laughs> so, um, are we good to go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, some clarifications for the next few episodes. Uh, it gets a little confusing. Uh, there's some people in the story that have the same names. So, Joseph Smith Jr. is the infamous founder of Mormonism, otherwise referred to as a prophet uh, quite often. Please understand that when I say prophet, that is as a rational student of history, and I do so sardonically and not a believer of Mormonism. Um, Joseph Smith Sr. is his father, who I will do my best to refer to as Joe Sr., and Lucy Mack, the so-called prophet's mother. Uh, there's also about a half a dozen brothers and sisters in the mix uh, and a bunch of neighbors and relatives, but I'll do my best to keep things as clear as possible. Um, additionally, there is a distinction to be made between endogenous and exogenous religious experiences. I understand there are a score of ways to reliably induce religious experiences in individuals uh, or those you know brought about by so-called natural methods like prayer, chanting, uh, yoga, uh, exertion to the point of exhaustion, that type of thing. Uh, when you hear me say exogenous in the future, I am referring to a chemical catalyst found outside of one's own body uh, that can similarly induce such experiences. 
now, the distinction I try to keep clear is that while we have a hard time deciphering individual religious experiences induced endogenously from exogenous ones throughout history, we do not have this problem when it comes to groups. So while one person can reliably induce such experiences on their own, groups of people having a shared experience or hallucination, if you prefer, is incredibly difficult, if not nigh impossible, to reliably recreate without an endogenous catalyst, mainly drugs. Much of my research focuses on this difference, and I try not to spend a lot of time analyzing individual experiences, but those of shared group experiences, um, as those are more likely to be easily distinguished as being catalyzed by exogenous sources. Uh, drugs, psychedelics, and mind-altering plant compounds will be covered in greater detail uh, the further we get on in, in this podcast, uh, probably have the, a few of their own episodes. So if you're feeling offended or that I'm making disparaging claims about religious leaders, please save your angry emails for the future or just check out some of my other work in the show notes. We good to go to the story? <laughs> um, so, Lucy Mack and Joseph Sr., uh, created the prophet, so to speak, that created the Mormon religion. So we should probably start with them. The union between Lucy Mack and Joseph Sr. was a steadfast and very devoted one. It was often marred or tested by regular waves of tragedy or poverty. Um, but this devotion passed on to their children, as from the beginning to the very end, the Smith family held together by meeting such hardships as a unified family unit with consistently applied flexibility and ingenuity. Married in January of 1796 with both Lucy and Joseph Sr. in their early 20s, the future prospects for the Smith family originally looked really optimistic. Uh, this is from Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling. Quote, Both sides of the family helped Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack begin married life. Asel, Joseph Sr.'s father, uh, provided his son with part ownership of a handsome four-year farm. And Lucy's brother Stephen Mack presented Lucy with a $1,000 wedding gift. Lucy bought her household furnishings with other resources and laid away the $1,000 as a cash reserve. Solid start. Solid start. We looked this up too. Uh, $1,000 in 1800 was approximately $22,000 in today's money. I'm, I expected it to be more. I'm not going to lie. It's still... But it's still... Yeah. It's 20K is yeah. a grip of money. If I had 20K when I had gotten married, I would have gladly... Yeah, things would have been all right. Yeah. Well, and not to mention, like I said, he, he um, Joseph Sr. got half possession of a four-year-old farm, which is, that's an up and running established farm. Yeah. Um, they often worked um, alternately in the winter as school teachers and uh, during the summer and fall harvest season uh, as farmhands. So they could read. So, well, not only could they read, but they they were um, competent in teaching other people how to read. Right. Uh, so, and I think that says something. It, it does. For and that time period. As we'll see, uh, Lucy Mack in particular is a very articulate woman. And there's a, I think probably we'll get to it in the next episode. But there's even a scene where she's advising the doctors what to do with her sick children. And they take her advice. <laughs> 
So, but that was more because her knowledge of herb lore and stuff like that. Uh, no, specifically, uh, Joseph Smith Jr. Uh, came down with a really serious infection that he required leg surgery for. And after a few different surgeries, they were considering amputating his leg. And Lucy Mack literally like stood in front of the doorway and was like, you're not getting in here to amputate my kid's leg. You're going to do a different kind of surgery. And this is what you're going to do or you don't come in. And um, a bunch of doctors from Dartmouth, like up to about a dozen different surgeons, all kind of like she, she whipped into shape. So this woman like was very intelligent, very articulate and could command a room if need be, especially in the 1800s. I think that's noteworthy. Yeah. For a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Um, Cool. Um, I will also slip in really quick. Um, Lucy Mack Smith was born July 8th. It was 1775, so she was a cancer. <laughs> Lots of feels. Goddamn cancers. Yes. And uh, and Joseph Smith Sr. was born July 12th, 1771, also a cancer. So, you know, lots of feels going on. In- yeah. I, I myself am a cancer, so I sympathize with all of the feels. Lots of shell. <laughs> uh, little, little crabby pinchers and... Uh, and feels a little mush inside. <laughs> Rock hard candy with a chewy center. Specifically with, with Lucy Mack, I think it bears some uh, noting that she did have a lot of feels, but she did have a lot of reason to have a lot of feels. Uh, she had a hard, hard life. And I mean, everybody had a hard life in the 1800s. I don't think anyone was like, yeah, <laughs> this is so easy. But uh, specifically, she had a she had a pretty tragic upbringing with a sort of absentee father that regularly gambled uh, the family resources. Cool. So it was very frequently feast or famine. Um, so she learned how to be uh, resourceful at a really young age. Hence the yeah. reason she didn't blow the thousand bucks she got. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that- she had she had two different sisters that had consumption at the same time, and they alternately kind of got sick. And she was as a, like an eight year old girl left to take care of both of them. Okay. Well, and that makes sense. Um, she was able to. And being yeah. you know feast or famine, she figured out how to work some herbs because yeah, right. you know yeah. okay, you got to keep your sisters alive. All right. Um, Part of the reason why her dad may have been so – he was absentee and he kind of gambled things. He had several severe injuries after like major falls and probably had a, a, a wee touch of traumatic brain injury. Uh, Like horse falls? Like- uh, one was, was I think off of a, a well – or it was off of a um, a water wheel and another oh. one was like off of a uh, – out of a tree. So like, is he doing very, you know, living a hard 1800s life where you're working a farm and stuff. Gotta fix that water wheel. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, so to speak to her tragedy, like both of her sisters were sick most of her formative years. Okay. And one of her sisters died uh, when she was young and she actually sat next to her while she died. And her sister like horrifically was describing the cold creeping into her fingers and oh. face. So she like dealt with death on a personal level. Um, Later, actually, again, because of her dad, her dad went to um, her other sister's place when she came down with a a bout of consumption again and convinced her to come home. And on the way home, her other sister died. Um, So while she was very, very sick, he was like, hey, travel. Yeah, right. So uh, Richard Bushman uh, calls Lucy Mack and her family – He 
describes it as grim endurance, which I think is like the perfect uh, description of Lucy Mack. Like this woman went through life with just grim endurance. And as the story progresses, this woman just meets tragedy with like silent, uh, perseverance, perseverance. That's a good word. So a lot of dead family and friends, um, she she uh, she was once quoted as saying like life was not worth possessing. Uh, so clearly she dealt with bouts of depression because of all of this, um, and she found solace in divinatory practices that were a part of like Christian occultism. So she found faith. She found solace in religion, and like her magical practice was a part of that religious devotion. She did have so one successful brother in her family who became a merchant, and it was him and his business partner that presented her with the $1,000 that she saved away. Very nice of them. Very nice of them. Um, so, Lucy Mack and Joseph Sr. were born in 1796. They start out uh, with some pretty good prospects, and betraying perhaps their earliest tangible connection to masonry and like serious occult Christianity. The Smiths originally spelled their third son's name Hiram, H-I-R-A-M, which today it's, uh, it's spelled H-Y-R-A-M. I have a um, cousin named Hiram. <laughs> of Sorry. course. We all got those Mormon connections. Um, and Hiram it comes from the mythical patriarch of the Masons, uh, Hiram Abiff. So these Vermont areas in which the new family settled, even though we don't have evidence that they were doing anything at this time, by virtue of the fact that the third son's name is Hiram after the father of the Masons, uh, it's pretty obvious that that the new family settled in a new area uh, that was filled with religious mystics and occult mentors uh, that likely made the Smiths feel right at home, given their respective backgrounds. And it was at the about this time that by Joseph's senior's own words he said when he they moved to the vermont area for the first time this is when he really got into occultism and like money digging and stuff so they got married they moved to the farm in vermont uh we'll get to them moving around they moved around a lot okay so... uh, but they started out in in vermont okay and this is where he started getting into occultism and uh, as we'll see some serious culty occultism <laughs> um so d- in her manuscript history, Lucy fails to mention her and her husband's religious or occult interests at this time, which is why I said we have a hard time like, nailing this down. Mostly to protect themselves? Uh, yeah. And or we'll the s- church? <laughs> Mostly for the church and Joseph. Okay. Uh, and we'll see why later, but they kind of had to distance themselves from the magic and focus on the religion, uh, mostly for legal purposes. Um, well, at least written. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, Joseph Sr. claimed that it was at this... Uh, this time that, that his magical career began while moving around this Vermont area. As John Brooke stated in his book, The Refiner's Fire, The Making of Mormon Cosmology, quote, the towns of central Vermont were the immediate hearth of Joseph Smith's Mormon church. The Smiths of Topsfield uh, were predisposed by witchcraft beliefs and metallurgical dreams. The Max of Lyme, uh, Lucy Max family lived in a religious milieu of visions, healing miracles, and sectarian perfectionism. The marriage of Joseph Smith Sr. and Lucy Mack in Tunbridge, Vermont, brought both streams of familial culture into a single household. Long before the 1820s, the Smiths were caught up in a dialectic of spiritual ministry and secular fraud framed in the hostile symbiosis of divining and counterfeiting and in the diffusion of Masonic culture in an era of sectarian favor and profound millenarian expectation. 
So <laughs> what that means <laughs> is that uh, during during this time, uh, they were involving themselves with what we would today consider uh, apocalyptic cults. Uh, this pre-millenarian uh, expectation was uh, the Christian expectation that the second coming was coming very soon and that basically the end of the world would be here. Here, I literally just read a uh, news article about the same thing happening. Oh, today so, it's yeah. it's never it's not a new thing. Like humans have no. always been living on the the very precipice of apocalypse, yeah. Yeah. or so we think. It's during this very formative uh, period for the young family when they're trying to get on their feet uh, that they were later cited by locals as being involved in a curious incident known as the wood scrape. And it's one of these groups that uh, we get that profound millenarian expectations that Brooks just described. Founded by an excommunicated congregationalist named Nathaniel Wood in the 1790s, this group called themselves the New Israelites, which Mormons should recognize, established themselves in the Vermont, Connecticut areas largely. Uh, preaching an apocalyptic gospel, Wood claimed to have received from divine revelation that the end of the world would begin on January 14th, 1802. Oh. Uh, another quote from uh, John Brooks' Refiner's Fire, quote, the beliefs of the new Israelites brought together magical practice and biblical restorationism in ways not seen since Ephrata and the English revolutionary sects. Ephrata is something that we will get into at some length. I think Ephrata may even get their own episode at one point. Um, Sounds sexy. I'm going to quickly digress. So probably not. <laughs> um, the group in Ephrata were a bunch of Christian millenarians who, again, were waiting for the apocalypse to come. They also, call, <laughs> <laughs> they also called themselves the New Israelites, um, and they founded what would become the Brotherhood of Zion, which is another phrase that Mormons should recognize. Yeah. Um, the key to this being that they built a giant temple uh, under the same sort of blueprints that the Mormons would use hmm. 30, 40 years later. Oh. And the the locales that all of the Mormon hierarchy lived in, in these Vermont areas, mm -hmm. were in the proselytizing trail, so to speak, of the Ephrata cult. So they would send out ministers to go, like, talk about their beliefs. Uh -huh. And they ran, they basically, like, ran around the same neighborhoods that all these people were living in. So the idea that they knew of and probably associated with members of the Ephrata cult is mm -hmm. very likely. Okay. And why it's important to Mormons and drugs is that the Ephrata cult used a, a very exogenous um, initiation rite where essentially you took a substance in a confined area in the temple for up to 30 days and you went through a very traditional shamanic initiation oh. where your body dissolves and you're given a new one. You talk oh, with angels. And... Elysian fields type. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. <laughs> anyway, that <laughs> we'll talk way more about the Ephrata cult because they got very uh, explicit in their explanations of what was going on, mm. um, and sometimes it's it's insane what was happening in what you would think of as like Puritan Vermont. <laughs> it's like some of these guys got up some really okay. fun stuff. Awesome! I'm excited for that. Okay, but anyways, so anyway, back to the the wood scrape. We're in the wood scrape. Yes, cool. the, these new Israelites. Uh, back to the quote from Brooke. Claiming a literal descent from the lost tribes of Israel and to be living in a special dispensation, uh, his family of followers began to work on a temple and divined for gold, quote, to pave the new streets of New Jerusalem. So they were looking for gold to build this new city? 
Yes. Okay. Um, and that this is what brought about the money digging and stuff. Like people. Well, would, why do you need a new city if ever like the apocalypse is coming? <laughs> Especially I, one made of gold. Okay. Uh, you want a nice place for for Jesus to live, I guess. Word. It's that whole prosperity doctrine thing. Uh, I heard he really wanted he, a city with gold. Yeah. That if there's one thing like Jesus a... didn't ever complain about, it was rich people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're joking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. Their expectations that a, quote, destroying angel would bring down earthquakes and plagues onto the Gentiles so alarmed the town that on the appointed night, the militia turned out under arms. And when the apocalypse failed to materialize, the woods removed west into St. Lawrence County, New York. So they sat there, looked at the clock, clock kept going. They all looked around, felt real dumb and just kind of like wandered away. Mm-hmm. Well, actually... it. If, if I'm to understand this correctly, the town militia showed up because they were like, these guys are nuts and yeah. they're waiting for the end oh, of the world. A pack of crazies outside. And I guess some of them opened fire oh, <laughs> onto okay. they the... they were running them out. Yeah. Right. And um, I so when they left to St. Lawrence County, it may have been because they were shot their way there. <laughs> okay. okay. We, um, yeah, all right. And interestingly, a, a lot of the... I will get to that. Anyway, immediately, immediately following the birth of Hiram, uh, the the Hiram Abiff kid, which is their second, which is their uh, second boy, second boy, third kid. Uh, she had one kid miscarried, had Alvin, their oldest okay. living son, and then Hiram. And then Hiram with an Joseph eye. comes next. Hiram with an eye. Yes. Uh, so it was in this early spring of the 1800s that uh, the new Israelites were joined by a counterfeiter and con artist identified by John Brooke as Justice Winchell, who either introduced or instigated the group's more occult inclinations of money digging and divining with rods. Hmm. It was upon moving into the area and joining the new Israelites that Winchell originally boarded with an educated family of largely physicians, the Cowderies whom would later go on to help found the Mormon church. Okay, so Justice Winchell comes in. He's a counterfeiter uh, because at the time that was a legitimate profession. Odd in the hat. Yeah. Uh, and he's just like, hey, guys, I got all these cool new tricks. Mm-hmm. And the Cowdery's uh, are in the same millenarian group led by Wood that uh, the young Smith couple are. So Smith and the Cowdery's dad are in cahoots 20, 30 years before their kids start the Mormon faith. Okay. So, so we got these three, three amigos <laughs> with their, yeah, with their posse running around divining and. Actually, uh, it's not just them. Um, yeah, Michael Quinn has satisfactorily demonstrated a very tangible familial connection between the Rockwells, the Walters, the Cowdries, the Hurlbuts, and the Smiths during uh, this time, all of whom are connected to Justice Winchell, the con man, okay. and the New Israelite movement, and all of whom would later go on to become the first members of the fledgling Mormon religion. Okay. And not only this, but like I said, Joseph Smith and his family had to move around because of you know poverty. Mm. All these families kind of seem to have moved around together, together in clusters. Okay. And so 20, 30 years later, like I said, when all their kids start the Mormon faith, they're the first members. Yeah. That makes sense. They learned all the mistakes from their parents. Like, <laughs> this hey, is we, how you we, don't we, run a this cult. This is what you don't do. Um, <laughs> so furthermore, uh, John Brooke, he's put uh, forward an interesting case that this, these mil- this millennial group and all these people were – you know, hiding secret counterfeiting operations. And that seems to be his focus of his book. I think he kind of glazes over um, what he calls smoke sellers. He like regularly refers to them as smoke sellers. Hmm. Um, Because again, these guys are physicians Mm -hmm. and magicians. Mm -hmm. 
And if, if you mix being a doctor and being a magician, you get really good drugs, I'd yeah. imagine. Yes. <laughs> and um, at the time, fumi- especially then, fumigations. <laughs> There's uh, no FDA. <laughs> right. Um, at the time, fumigations were the most uh, common way of like inducing these experiences. Okay. Uh, so hot boxing. Yeah. If you, for another, <laughs> another way of referring wagon. to me. <laughs> um, so regardless of whether or not they did in fact practice these, uh, these counterfeiting operations, they did practice very specific forms of esoteric Christianity in conjunction with the more kind of occult money digging and divining practices. This, this belays a very deep seated connection to the foundation of Mormon just a generation after the wood scrape. And the fact that all these guys were like educated school teachers or, or, or physicians, like, while medicine was a little weird at the time, right? Uh, yeah, they, they did. As, uh, well, they had access, but yeah. they weren't they weren't as respected or as um, as standardized as they are today. Yeah, but people like this who had access to the books right. that we'll find out they had access to right. n- knew their business, right? And yeah. they had a well established lineage of you know at least four hundred years at that point of people who also knew their business and had written about it, right? So. As one, just to verify that I'm not, you know, making this all up, uh, as one Vermont neighbor later recollected, quote, I've been told that Joe Smith's father resided in Pulteney at the time of the wood movement here and that he was in it. And one of the leading rodsmen, and we'll find out later that that was his uh, preferred method. He really liked to use the divining rods. Of this, I cannot speak positively but for want of satisfactory evidence, but that he was a rodsman under the tuition of this counterfeiter Winchell after he went to Palmyra has been proven. I have before said that Oliver Cowdery's father was in the wood scrape. That's the Cowdery's Oliver Cowdery uh, is one of the three witnesses. He lived in Palmyra and there we find these men with the counterfeiter Winchell searching for money over the hills and mountains with a hazel rod and their sons, Joe and Oliver, as soon as they were old enough, were in the same business. Unquote. Tagging along. So this is a contemporary neighbor uh, <laughs> saying this. This isn't. This isn't just a, a, a modern reinterpretation. So additionally, many of the, uh, like I said, the group's hierarchy were trained physicians, and their treatments likely not only appreciated the application of mind altering compounds, but they obviously incorporated them into religious and magical ritual. Like I said, John Brooke curiously refers to them as the smoke sellers. So I, <laughs> it doesn't take, it's not a great leap of logic to assume they're using drugs. Again, I, I don't really focus on this period because there's not a, a lot of explicit, like these guys were drunk and doing this at this time. Okay. Uh, but as we'll see later, that those accounts do come out. So in the, Biography she wrote about her prophetic son. Lucy Mack fails to mention anything about this period, uh, completely skipping the wood scrape and moving on. She mentions that in the fall of the following year in 1802, spring of 1803, they opened a store in Randolph, Vermont, uh, which quickly sold out for promise of payment in commodities at harvest. So basically what that means is, um, Joseph Sr. opened a store in Randolph, Vermont. He bought all of these, the stock for the store on credit. Okay. Um, and he's, I think it was something like $1,800, which at the time that's close to 35, 40K. Yeah. And then made another big uh, financial risk. Turning to more immediate fiscal opportunities, um, not just like 
magic and money digging. Joseph Sr. embarked on a processed ginseng operation in hopes of selling the root for quick cash in Chinese markets. Um, at the time, we had discovered a, an American form of ginseng, and there was a small boom in China for American ginseng. This only lasted a few years. This bubble popped because the Chinese figured out their ginseng was a lot better, because it is. Yeah. But for the purposes of this argument, he demonstrated a very competent knowledge of plant identification and processing. Mm. Joseph Sr. and Lucy Mack collected and crystallized a bulk of American ginseng worth as much as $3,000 in cash. Um, they hoped to flip this and make as much as $4,500. So if we're looking at 1800 money, this is roughly $60,000 worth of ginseng they processed, and they were hoping to flip it for somewhere between eighty dollars and $90,000 in today's money. So yeah. that's a big financial risk, but the payoff's really big. Right. Um, and again, that's a lot of ginseng to process. Yeah, no, I was picturing him like Walter White and like, <laughs> just like, like crystallizing this ginger. Just an old, wiry Joseph Sr. <laughs> in his underwear making crystallized ginseng. Making the best crystallized ginger he could possibly. Mr. Smith. Um, so uh, Joseph Sr. was offered 3000 in cash uh, by a local merchant. That's how we know how much ginseng they processed. And this guy was identified only as Mr. Stevens. Uh, Joseph Sr. turned Already down. sounds like a drug dealer. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> Joseph Sr. turned down Mr. Stevens' offer and proceeded to New York where he contracted a ship to take his ginseng on consignment to China. Lucy continued, quote, Mr. Stevens, hearing that Mr. Smith was making, it does, it does sound like a, <laughs> sound like a Reservoir Dogs drug deal. <laughs> uh, Mr. Stevens, hearing that Mr. Smith was making arrangements to ship his ginseng, repaired immediately to New York and, by taking some pains, he ascertained the vehicle on board which Mr. Smith had shipped his ginseng, and having some of the same article on hand himself, he made arrangements with the captain to take his also, and he would send his son on board the vessel to take charge of it, unquote intercepted and again that's that's lucy that's a direct quote from lucy mack she's clearly an articulate woman that mm -hmm. was more than capable of educating her her kids in the same uh, thing she was as we'll see so sometime later mr stevens son returns from china claiming that the venture was a total failure and offering a small chest of tea as consolation <laughs> the family was pretty upset um There's shortly tea to live off of <laughs> right Shortly afterwards, Mr. Stevens rented a house from Lucy Mack's brother, the successful merchant who gave her the $1,000. Mm. He rented a house out from her brother and hired out nearly a dozen workers to begin processing ginseng whole, like, <laughs> wholesale. Shady. So one day, while finding Mr. Stevens, uh, quote, considerably intoxicated, Lucy's brother proceeded to interrogate Mr. Stevens over the new ginseng business in light of the Smith's recent failure in the Chinese market. He's like, yo, dude, my sister... Yeah. Uh, and her husband. I see you partying. I see what you're doing. Hard, hiring <laughs> all kinds of runners, and uh, well, he must have been pretty sly because allegedly, uh, Mr. Stevens took her brother, who he knew was her brother. He's probably like, I'm, I'm not that close to my sister. <laughs> We're not that like, yeah. But he he takes <laughs> he takes him into another room with a full chest of silver and gold, and very smugly says, "Quote there, sir, are your proceeds of Mr. Smith's ginseng. Just a big old." Fuck you. Yeah. 
And so after sobering up a bit and realizing that he just disclosed this to Joseph Sr.'s brother-in-law. Say something about her brother-in-law not just beating the crap out of him and yeah. taking it. Well, he he immediately goes back to Lucy and right. tells her what's going on. Right. So good brother, again. N- good seems brother, to be a yeah, good brother. But like, I think most people would have just beat him up. And taking it. I mean, it's like, you're drunk. What are you going to do? But, exactly. You know, he sounds like a... Well, this is 1800s, too. Like, hiding right? a body yeah, and getting no, away yeah, with... <laughs> seriously, like, could have done anything. Yeah. Good thing for Mr. Stevens. He wasn't like that. Yeah. So, understandably, Joseph Sr. apparently pursued this man from, for some time, but uh, eventually returned home and defeated and $2,000 in debt when everything was said and done. So, the credits due, the store didn't make any money. They're $2,000 in debt, and they just dumped everything they had into this ginseng thing. So um, not only were they in debt, and Lucy had to give up her $1,000 of savings, they had to sell the farm that he had. And they got two little kids. And they got She's they preggers, got two little kids. Probably. She's preggers on, uh, with a third. They're now impoverished and tenants on strangers' properties, uh, and they don't have their family to rely on like they did. Joseph Sr.'s noted intemperance, uh, meaning his drinking problem or so again this is another thing when they say intemperance or or drunk in at this point in history everybody drank kids drank yeah. so when it's the someone only thing that kept you going <laughs> <laughs> so when you're when your neighbors call you a drunk mm. and they drink every day you're, you're <laughs> a raving lunatic you're a raving lunatic <laughs> um and the source of your intoxication was not necessarily important to them. Mm. It was just that you were a problem in public. Mm. It was like, keep your liquor down. Whatever that, whatever makes you like this, Mm -hmm. handle yourself. Mm. And so as we go down this story, this is where Joseph Sr.'s intemperance starts. I'm not going to say it was alcohol consumption because I think it's pretty clear as we go on, he was using a lot of different plants to do this. And frankly, alcohol cost money at the time. And when they were that impoverished, it was way cheaper to go out in the woods and find your own sources than okay. buying okay. alcohol. Okay. Um, so, but also all those apples didn't didn't people just love to make? I, we will. There's a few. Um, it's in Vermont. There's a few drunken scenes with the Smith family that are in, in, that are initiated by cider consumption. So <laughs> that was everyone's favorite, wasn't that the whole reason for mm-hmm. Johnny Appleseed? And Joseph, yes, actually, most of this, the apples Follow planted the <laughs> were for cider. They right. were not for anything, but uh, because you would mix cider with like well water. So right. if your well water was sulfury and gross, you could mix it with cider. It would kill off it. some of the bacteria yeah. and it would make it more palatable. Um, and you're drunk. And you're drunk. <laughs> uh, but notably, as we'll get to, Joseph Jr. Mm-hmm. liked to mix things into his cider. Oh, he liked it harder. Yeah. Well, no, he. No? we don't know. Okay. But his family processed uh, molasses and sold it uh, at oh. their little corner store. Okay. And it's very, molasses is a great carrier for um, storing and preserving certain yes. psychedelics. Oh, yeah. So the fact that he would mix his cider and then get really drunk suggests to me that yeah. he was mixing something into his cider. Best cider in town. <laughs> so anyway, this this time after they kind of are uh, left destitute and impoverished, this is where Joseph Sr.'s noted intemperance comes out. This is where his neighbors start noticing that he's drunk. Cool. And again, everybody drank. Yeah. This is just when he be started to be- become a problem. 
And this is a habitual crutch, which remains with senior for the first few, for the next few decades, uh, up until about the formation of the Mormon church. Then he kind of seems to get his act together. Probably because money starts rolling. Well, in. it's exactly because money starts rolling right. in. He suddenly is, get, he gets paid as the, the church patriarch and he has a job. Um, so the Smiths never fully recovered from this financial disaster. And it's largely the reason for their sustained poverty during Joseph Smith Jr.'s formative years. Uh, while genuinely in financially desperate circumstances at times, it is worth noting that it is a near miracle uh, worth considerable admiration that Lucy Mack and Joseph Sr. managed to keep their large family fed, clothed, relatively happy, and frankly alive <laughs> when, it, when child mortality rates were astronomical. She and Lucy and Joseph had to know their plans really well because, again, they were poor. They could not afford money the way that they did or they couldn't afford medicine the way that they needed to go through it. Yeah. <laughs> the audience may not have. <laughs> um, true, 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 true. So th- this is where we kind of leave things. Um, I mentioned they had a few kids, but then the next episode is when we're going to focus on their kids and, you know, them, their family starting and what their kids were like and how they made money when they were left in this sort of impoverished state. Right. Well, they had 11 kids that lived. Uh, it's close to a dozen. I have to look it up off, offhand. Uh, I looked up. I've really had a drink quick. already. Uh, I saw 11 employees. I mean, children. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah. So they had nearly a dozen uh, working kids and it's pretty admirable that all of them seem to live until adulthood. Wow. Yeah. This kind of gives us the context for the next part of the story where impoverished and with a history of, you know, occult leanings, they start careers as magicians, essentially, and for some time sustain their impoverished family off of the proceeds from doing magic. ceremonial magic. I'm not going to lie, I'm a little jealous. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I mean, that would be cool to be just be a ceremonial cool. magician as a... As a profession, right? Excuse me, I'm a I'm a sorcerer. That is my <laughs> my, my occupation. A druid moth, dog, <laughs> so whatever. So that's where we'll leave things. Um, the the wood scrape again is is what's really surprising to me that all of these families that later went on to start Mormonism lived in the same area, were clearly in touch with one another, and their kids are the ones that start the the Mormon faith. Mm. I think that's the big pull away mm-hmm. <laughs> from today. Mm-hmm. I know your herbs. I'm really itching to rant down a side trail, but I'm just not going to. Don't, don't. don't do it. Don't. All right, we'll just finish. Join us next week. This was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed it. It's our first time. Be gentle. We did it. Yay. Yay. Go Team Venture. Can you, <laughs> can you do the podcast out? <laughs> that's the noise that Moth Doula makes when she leaves the room. <laughs> and glitter. <laughs> and-